Look at Genesis this morning. We are reminded the second installment of this message, as I promised you last week, will get us through the end of chapter one. We're going to launch into verse 14 and read through verse 31. In way of reminder, this is a part two message that is entitled this, Sin Destroys, God Delivers. God forms and fills his perfect creation. As we see this second installment, uh, God willing, we will see in his forming and filling the theme that God's sovereign rule is over all creation. Now that, that, that theme of the text seems to be a little bit redundant, doesn't it? God's sovereign rule. Uh, both of those words essentially mean the same thing, but there are people who rule and don't rule in sovereignty. And yet God rules sovereignly. And so this morning, as we look at the text, we, we will define and discuss how indeed the text introduces to us the ways God's rule over creation then affect our accountability to him. Because God is sovereign, because God rules, because God cares for his creation, he showcases that care in this text, and thus we are accountable to him, and that is what the text shows clearly today. So as we talked about last time, as we continue through the text, we will see that because God rules his creation, we are accountable to him. This is a theme that is picked up throughout scripture. It's not just a theme in the narrative discussion that will flow through the rest of Genesis. It's not just spelled out in the sectional divisions of the narrative of the book, the Toledoths, the 11 mentions, five in the first section and five in the last section of narrative, chapters 1 to 11, chapters 12 to 50. Uh, it's not just mentioned in the remainder of uh, the Pentateuch, the first five books written by Moses, nor is it uh, just clear in uh, the narrative sections of the Chronicler or the Kings, First uh, and Second Samuel, written by uh, the last and final prophet. Uh, no, it is a theme throughout all of Scripture. The New Testament picks up the theme uh, when we find in John's Gospel, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. All things were made by Him. Without him was not anything made that was made. You see, friends, Jesus is the word. And the sovereign ruler of the universe who began all things, as we learn in the book of Revelation, will consummate all things. And one day the heavens and the earth will flee, melt with a fervent heat, as Peter says, and Jesus will sit on a great white throne. He will call from the depths of hell and the seas all the dead who have not called on Christ, did not call on them in their life, and they will stand and the books will be opened and they and God will have a final conversation. And yet, this morning, that is not the end, but we discuss the beginning. As we look at this incredible book of beginnings, we see the power of God and his sovereign rule over this creation, as we saw in just the first two verses of God's creation, we can trust God because he delivers. So we will see in verses 14 and following, we will see clearly, not only does God's trust and deliverance come because he formed all the earth, but we will see in this wonderful symmetry that he also fills the earth. Now, last time, uh, we preached, and it will be online if it's not yet. I think it is. Uh, we saw that there was a an incredible narrative symmetry in verses 
3 to 13, incredible numeric harmony in verses 3 to 13, and both the numeric harmony and the symmetry, the narrative symmetry, point to the sovereignty and the care of God. We saw that last time uh, in the way God answers the first two statements in Genesis chapter 1, 1, uh, 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created, bara, he created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and it was empty or void. And so that formless, voidless earth then gets form and gets filled. And that's the pattern that we see here. And yet in that pattern, we can get so uh, boggled down in the beauty and the description of it that we forget the humanity of it. And I want to talk about that today because the text will actually arise to a narrative pinnacle in verses 26 to 31 and showcase the intent of God's forming and filling. So as we look at this text this morning, uh, we will see God's rule over creation and our accountability to him showcased clearly last time we saw it in God's work in forming the earth. Today, we are going to finish this message and see God's work in filling the earth, verses 14 to 31. And so that brings us to our one and only point today. No amens. Uh, we do have some sub points, though. Uh, see, I gave you a dramatic pause. I gave you a chance to insert something there. Uh, no, we will see just in this one and only point, And again, the final point in conclusion to this two-part message, God's work in filling the earth showcases his incredible sovereignty, his right to rule, and our need and responsibility to be accountable to him. So the most important part of the message I mentioned last time is the part of the message right now. And you say, preacher, why is that? Because I'm actually going to read the divinely inspired text. It's the only thing that I can guarantee that I will say today that is absolute truth. <laughs> Not that I plan to lie to you, okay? But I am human. And I do have a fallible mind. And so therefore, let us listen to the divine word of God. Let us heed it. Let us let it saturate our minds. And I want you to follow the flow of the text in its narrative symmetry and numeric harmony. And then we will point out some of the highlights that we see in the text as we walk through it with some subpoints. Here in verse 14, we continue our journey now in the days of creation. Here we start with day four. And as you recall, as I'll point out again, uh, before we read, uh, we will see there is harmony between day four and day one, day five and day two, day six and day three. That was a symmetry that was pointed out last time, and I want you to see it clearly as I read it, and then we'll go on. Here we go, verse 14. Then God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night. And let them be for the signs and seasons and for the days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. Kind of a flippant comment about the rest of the universe. <laughs> then God, or God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night, and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. 
Then God said, let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth, cross the face of the firmament of the heavens. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves with which the waters abounded according to their kind and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, be fruitful, multiply, fill the waters in the seas, let the birds multiply on the earth. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. Then God said, let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth, each according to its kind. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Now notice with me this narrative shift, tipping my hat. I hope you're paying attention to this. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them, that is man, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them. And said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, see, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all of the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed, so that it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food. And it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. May God add a blessing to the portion of the reading of his word this morning. And we have a lot to comment about in this text. So as we dive in and we see that you and I are accountable to God because God rules his creation, let's see how that fleshes out and showcase, is showcased in God's work in filling the earth. First of all, we see a narrative symmetry, again, once again, that displays God's sovereignty in verses 14 to 25. And so let me highlight some of those things. Remember, we're talking about the text so that we understand the text in its context and thus can apply the text to our daily lives. This was given to Moses on purpose in this way for uh, the eons and the ages until the heavens and earth are remade. And so we're going to talk about the chief and the pinnacle of this narrative and of God's creation in a moment and the difference between this created thing and the, this earth and the people that God put on it. But there is a narrative symmetry. There are narrative symmetry that displays God's sovereignty. And I mentioned last time, remember, God not only worked to form the earth in verses 3 to 13 uh, in answer to his statement that it was without form, but he also worked to fill it. And that's, that's what we see here in this narrative. The correspondence between day one and day four is clear. Remember, day one, God said, let there be light. And there was light. And on day four, there is a, uh, a 
earth-centered or geocentric focus. The rest of this conversation is all up from the earth's perspective. So God is speaking to man, giving us an earthly perspective, which tells us that in God's narrative, in the scripture from Genesis to Revelation, God's focus is on the earth. The heavens declare the glory of God, Hashamayim, Chevod El, and Magnesay, Nagid, Harakim, Danyat, and I'm killing the Hebrew there, it's horrible, terrible, don't quote me on that. But that is Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the earth shows forth his handiwork, day into day declares knowledge, and night into night understand, uh, utters his speech. You see, God declares his glory through all of creation, but friends, the earth is where his focus is. And as we zoom in microscopically to uh, an even deeper level, we're going to see in verses 26 to 31 that humans are where God's focus is. The age-old question, if we were to have unlimited resources, unlimited knowledge, an unlimited ability to create uh, spacecraft and artificial gravity to launch mankind faster than the speed of light from one end of the galaxy to the other, would we not find a universe teeming with life and uh, extraterrestrial intelligence? And the answer is probably not. And you say, well, how can you support that biblically, Pastor? Because all the Bible talks about is mankind on this earth. And in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth to declare his glory. And at the pinnacle of his creation, verses 26 and 27, God declares mankind to have a special place in his plan. Now, um, that is not to say that um, God couldn't create extraterrestrial life, that he couldn't create worlds in the uh, uttermost universe that could support life, uh, but that is not the focus of the text, and it really shouldn't be the focus of our attention either. And so as we look at the text in its context, this narrative symmetry that displays God's sovereignty is supposed to direct us to something, and that something is the sovereign God who rules over all of this creation that he created and cares for makes us accountable to him. And we're going to apply that in a few moments. But uh, let's talk about the symmetry then on day four. The filling of the light on day four is given full expression by Moses is telling it twice. Did you see that? He says it twice in verse four. The second telling being the reverse of the first. Look at it again. So you don't just take Pastor Ryan's word for it. And God said, let there be lights in the firmaments of the heavens to divide the day and the night, and let them be for the signs and seasons for days and years. Then he switches it and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens and the, to, to light and give, uh, to give light on the earth. And it was so, verse 16, he switches it. Then God made two great lights. And he mentions just sort of haphazardly or flippantly, oh, and he also made all the stars in the universe. Now, what a wonder the earth and its environs are. I don't know if any of you have ever read um, probably the first and most important, maybe um, at least top three most important physicists in human history, Sir Isaac Newton. Uh, I was reading a commentary this week and I couldn't help but chuckle through an illustration uh, from that commentary as he described uh, Sir Isaac Newton was busily uh, working in his in his um, in his lab, and he had created a mechanical uh, recreation of 
of Earth's solar system, where he had uh, a representation of the sun and gears and cogs with, you know, the three inner planets and then all of the outer planets that they had discovered at that time, all in a, a, a solar orbit. He even had a little, a little moon orbiting the Earth, and he had a visitor who walked into his, uh, into his scientific laboratory, and he says, Mr. Newton, what's an exquisite thing? Who made it for you? Without looking up, Sir Isaac replied, nobody, nobody. And his friend asks, that's right. I said, nobody. All of these balls and cogs and belts and gears just happened to come together. And wonder of wonders, by chance, they began revolving in their set orbits and with perfect timing. And his friend undoubtedly got the point. You see, friends, as we look at the cosmic expanse of the universe, we see this beautiful earth, this spinning globe, the third rock from the sun, the place of God's divine blessing, the perfect environment for mankind to dwell, for birds of the air to fill the firmament, for fish of the sea to fill the depths of the oceans, for mankind to have dominion over the earth. No, it did not happen by chance. God said, and it was so. Friends, it's clear from the text. God said, and it was so. One of my, uh, speaking of science fiction, one of my favorite science fiction uh, characters Captain Jean-Luc Picard used to say on the bridge of his enterprise, before they were to uh, take off or do something, he would say, make it so. And I believe that every good story borrows from the greatest story. And I find it uh, ironic and somewhat comic that a science fiction story that would deny there is a God would use God's word so often uh, throughout and reflect it so often in its leadership. Make it so, God says, and it was so. And so as we look at the wonder and the symmetry of day four, uh, let me give you one other illustration. Suppose I had this morning, and this is, again, not an attempt to poke fun at, at a community that desperately needs our Lord and Savior. It is an attempt to showcase the beauty of God's clearly revealed word and how his people can trust it and live in a world that denies it yet still give the truth to those who are deniers of it. And here's, here is that illustration. Let's say I came this morning with, uh, and I had some change and I decided to throw it out because I didn't have 10 pennies. But let's say I had, I mean, who carries pennies anymore anyway, right? We, we find them on the ground all the time. I know Marlene does. I actually have a pile of them somewhere at home. But, you know, uh, if I had 10 pennies in my pocket and I actually stuck a piece of tape on the back of them, and numbered them. What, what did just I just pull out of my pocket? Oh, apparently uh, something. Anyway, uh, let's say I had 10 pennies in my pocket and I numbered them one to 10. And then I kind of, you know, rattled them around in my hand and I threw them back in my pocket and kind of jiggled my pocket a little bit. And I reached in there and by chance, I was able to pull out number one. First try, not Batman 17th try and Lego Batman, but actual first try. First try, pull out number one. One in 10 chance, a 10% chance that that would happen. Now let's suppose that I put that back in, shuffled the, the, the coins in my pocket, and then I, I reached down into my pocket, dug a little bit deeply, and I pulled out number two. Wow, a one in 100 chance. And I did that over and over and over and over. Do you know the probability of me pulling out one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, 
nine, 10 in perfect order every single time is one in a billion. One in a billion. I'm talking about 10 pennies here, people. The chance that this universe came together by happenstance is absolutely astronomically, numerically, mathematically impossible to the nth degree. Nothing comes from nothing until God gets involved and makes everything out of nothing. There is a divine designer, and the divine designer has created everything for a purpose. And the quintessential point of the symmetry of the text is to showcase God's masterful power and authority and sovereignty over all of this beauty that he created. The symmetries of day one and four, that God would create light. And day two and five, that, and, and three and six, that God would create all these things in days one through three that would exist without the greater and lesser light and the stars of the universe. How, how can plants photosynthesize without a sun? How can seas have ebb and flow and tide without a moon? How could the atmosphere exist uh, without God's uh, heavenly body set? How could man measure time without the stars or navigate this globe uh, without the stars? And yet, Days one through three, none of those existed. Yet all the plant life did. And so the point I'm making is this. The symmetry in the narrative showcases God's sovereignty. And the order in which he states it showcases our, uh, our accountability to that sovereign God. Without him, there is no life. Right? John 1, in him was life. And the life was the light of men, or in him was light. The life was light was the light of men, right? And so here we go. As we look at the context um, of this story, let's take a look at the symmetry of day five then. On day two, God had divided the primeval waters by creating an expanse, which he called the heavens or the firmament or the sky. In the Hebrew word there, uh, essentially, we, we see that as an atmosphere around the globe. We don't know exactly how far that goes. We have uh, satellites that, are, that, we, that circumnavigate the earth um, in various, various distances right now, 300 or so miles above the, the earth's surface, and we still have some type of discernible atmosphere out that way, not very much, but a little bit as it dissipates into the outer uh, uh, firmament. But God has divided the firmament from the water, the waters above from the waters below. And so separating the waters uh, above and below on the corresponding day in day five, what does he do? He formed it on day two. On day five, he fills it. He fills the skies and the seas. And you think about the waters literally swarming with, little, little, uh, with living things. The monsters of the great deep. Whales and sharks and swordfish and leviathan. Whatever that fire-breathing aqua aquatic creature was that Job saw. Uh, certainly was created at this time. Uh, they reigned amidst schools of tuna and dolphin and thousands of lesser colorful fin creatures. Many that were unknown to us until the 20th century. And above, uh, an ornithologist's delight 
filled the skies with eagles and ravens and gulls and geese and ducks and woodpeckers and finches and you name them, they're there. And so the firmament above and the waters below are teeming with life on day five. The waving, undulating beauty seen first by the sea diver and the gliding iridescent arrays of the heavens exist because of God's thought and at his pleasure. And the text says, and God saw that it was good. And as a result, he blessed his new creatures and he commanded them to increase and grow, infusing them with the ability to reproduce. And here in the text, it says they reproduced after their kind. Right now, uh, we're not going to get into great detail here because I don't want to bog ourselves down. I want to actually finish this sermon on time today. But we understand this idea of kind and creation researchers have scientists have uh, helped us with this. Um, there are this is the idea of speciation. Okay? So cat kind, dog kinds, there's all kinds of dogs. Technically, you have a Great Dane that can breed with a Chihuahua. I wouldn't want to see that happen, nor would I want to see the result of it. But they all came from one kind, the dog kind, the canine kind, right? This is, this is, this is the derivation of the species, the, the speciation. Uh, it was, it's been uh, kind of funny and interesting in the last decade. Uh, some uh, Darwinists um, have, Darwinian evolutionists have gone back to the Galapagos and investigated uh, Darwin's finches. Uh, and, and they have discovered that there's a, they have found a, new type of finch that has now arrived on the island. And so um, in Darwinian fashion, they've drawn those finches in full color and taken pictures and photographs. And some scientists have decided to capture them, and take a blood sample. And what they found was it was a finch that had flown to the island from 80 miles away from another island that has that species of finch and it interbred with a species of finch that was on the Galapagos. And it created a new uh, subspecies of, get you guessed it, finch. It didn't create a duck, or better yet, didn't create a lizard. It created a finch. And the point is, God allowed kinds to develop and interdevelop inter in, within the species. And so here we find God creating these incredible firmaments filled with life after their kind. Now, there's a symmetry in day six as well. On day three, God had caused the dry ground to appear, and he covered it with vegetation. And now on the corresponding day six, he fills this vegetable-filled ground with land creatures. The categories are generic, and they're meant to encompass every terrestrial beast. Livestock uh, uh, would mean domesticated animals. Creatures that move along the ground would signify all manner of small animals, and wild animals represent game. Uh, sport uh, game. All creatures are great and small. The Lord made them all. You've heard that nursery rhyme. Um, this would also include bugs. It's, it's fascinating that on day three, God would create plants that cannot self-pollinate or reproduce without certain bugs. And he didn't create the bugs until day six. Just like God created the plants on day three, but the light that was supposed to help photosynthesize the plants on day four. This is why, by the way, we interpret this as literal six 24-hour days, one of many reasons, not to mention that the text clearly states it that way and stipulates it that way. Even if this we were to take this as some modern theologians do, God's special days. 
In other words, it's not a six 24 hour period of time. It's God's day, whatever that means. Um, maybe God's day is a thousand years because Peter says a thousand years is like a day to God and the day is like a thousand years. So maybe it took him billions and billions of years to create the earth on day one through six. Well, if that happened, uh, I don't think the plants on day three would have been there very long without day four showing up rather soon. Do you? Or day six? And the point is simply this. The text does not require us to somehow manufacture a modern view. We just listen to the text, let the text speak for itself and recognize God's absolute sovereign right to rule and thus our accountability to him. He created all life and all life exists at the will of his good pleasure, including us. And so uh, as we see the categories that these generic categories, uh, we must never forget that the mind of God created all of this. So when we contemplate the heavens, we learn something of God. As I mentioned, Psalm 19:2, day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. We ride the Hubble telescope across the galaxies and learn something about him. We travel into the microscopic complexities of the human cell, and the human genome, and we learn even more about our great God. We go deeper into the atom, its quarks, its leptons, and we learn even more about our great God. Likewise, that which we touch and taste and feel teaches us more about our great God. You see, all of this creation is about God said, and it was so. God gets to define his creation. God even gets to quantify what is good about his creation. That means God is absolutely sovereign. And if God is absolutely sovereign and divinely has a right to rule, then you and I are accountable to him. We see this in incredible narrative display of symmetry in the way God gives this text to Moses and passes it on for the reader's understanding. But there's also a narrative interruption that displays God's sovereignty in verses 26 to 31. And I know that, again, uh, many of you are thinking, well, Pastor, you filled me with facts. Don't worry, we're getting to the application. There is an incredible narrative interruption here. Let's look at it again. Did you catch it? All along the way from, from verse 1 to 25, we've had a third-person discussion. And all of a sudden, the dialogue switches to first person. This is a narrative hook that we are supposed to catch and see very clearly because of a narrative interruption, it showcases God's divine sovereignty. What does he interrupt us to say? Well, first and foremost, he interrupts us to say that mankind is the pinnacle of God's creation. There's two things here, and I'm done. This is one of them. Mankind is the pinnacle of God's creation. God interrupts the symmetrical display of his sovereignty to grab our attention as readers, and the narrative as it switches from third person to first person, God then inserts the first uh, chiastic poem into the conversation. The first poem in scripture is found in Genesis 1:27, And the way it's phrased and works out, as our missionary last week showed you, talked to you about a chiasm, it's essentially uh, uh, the, the Greek key or chi is an X. And so the pattern goes like this with the center 
of the phrases being highlighted. And so what we find here is a, is a parallel chiastic phrase that is a poem. And this poem is meant to showcase mankind as the pinnacle of his creation. Says very clearly, God says, let us. Now, this indicates divine dialogue. We see this very clearly. Let us make man in our image. There's divine dialogue going on. Some have tried to sidestep this by seeing it as a conversation with angels. This is one of the ways it's been explained away. But that's impossible. Why? Angels aren't made in the image of God. Okay? Besides, angels can add nothing to God's omniscient wisdom. They're created beings, just like we are. Others have attempted to prove it as a plural of majesty, such as was used by ancient potentates. A royal who would thus say, we declare to you today that our rule and reign is supreme and sovereign. That would be a single guy saying we and our. That's not what this is. That is not a, a plural of majesty. This idea is flawed because the point of the verse is not God's majesty, though God's ma majesty is revealed all throughout chapter one. In truth, it is the plural of what we call deliberation. Here, divine deliberation is occurring. One commentator says this, Henry Blotcher explains, and I quote, God addresses himself, but this he can do only because he has a spirit who is both with him and distinct from him at the same time. Here is the first glimmerings of a Trinitarian revolution. The reference to, quote, the spirit of God in chapter one, verse two, hovering over the waters demonstrates a co-participant in creation. The New Testament gives the full meaning uh, of this entire transaction when it teaches the radical involvement of Christ in creation. I already quoted John 1, 1 through 3, but there's also 1 Corinthians 8, 6. In fact, let's turn, let's just read these. So again, you can be a Berean today. 1 Corinthians, and by that I'm talking about Acts chapter 16, Bereans who search the scriptures daily to find out which things would be so. They were better than the Thessalonians, so let's search the scriptures ourselves. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6, if you don't believe me that Christ is involved in creation from quoting John 1, 1, how about this one, verse 6, yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we live. So in other things, all things exist through Jesus. This showcases his power, his presence, and his authority in and through and over creation. How about this one? Colossians 1, 15 through 18, just a couple of pages in your New Testament over. Uh, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. Colossians uh, chapter 1, verses 15 to 18, speaking of Christ. He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. By the way, this is a conscripted verse that other um, broad brush Christian denominations, uh, they claim themselves to be Christian, but they deny the deed of Christ. Thus, they can't be Christian, in my opinion. But those broad brush sweeping would say, well, see, Jesus was born. No, firstborn here means the first right of inheritor. He has the supreme rights like the ancient firstborn rights. Firstborn over all creation, verse 16, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him 
and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. You say, well, pastor, those are pretty convincing. Well, how about another one? Hebrews chapter one. So a couple more pages deeper into your New Testament. Hebrews chapter one, verses one to three. You say, Pastor, you've quoted this verse before. Yes, I have. Let's do it again. Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he, God the Father, has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he, God the Son, made the world, or God the Father made the worlds through whom? The Son. Verse 3, who being the brightness of his, God the Father's glory, and the express image of his, God the Father's person, and upholding all things by the word of his, Jesus' power. See, Jesus is the fulfillment of this reality. Jesus, in the beginning, created all things, and he holds all things together by the word of his power. He is the divine uh, uh, contractor, as it were, and God is the master architect, and the Holy Spirit is the power tools or the power source. Terrible illustration. Don't mean to be modalistic, but you understand what I'm saying in this process. The Trinity is a very difficult thing to understand. But here in this text, this is what is going on. Like you say, preacher, I'm almost convinced. Good, there's one more verse that I'm going to take you to. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11. And there are many, 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 many more we could take to prove the Trinity. How about the verse on the back wall there? Uh, uh, Matthew 28, 19, we're baptizing in, we are commissioned to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, all in one verse, all divine. But here we go, Revelation chapter four and verse 11. Listen to uh, what the text says here. Speaking of Jesus, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. So this divine dialogue that is happening, a deliberation between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is, a, is an interruption in the symmetry on purpose, a transition from third person to first person, uh, a, an insertion then in verse 27 of a chiastic poem, the very first poem in the Bible on purpose to grab our attention and to showcase God's absolute sovereignty requires our accountability because mankind is the pinnacle of God's creation. So as we see verse 27, the first poem in the Bible, as I mentioned, it consists of three lines. The three lines each have four stresses. Let's read it. Verse, oh, I got to go back to it. I'm in Revelation. Go back to the very beginning. Genesis 1, 27. Let, so God created man in his own image, phrase one. In the image of God, he created him, phrase two. Male and female, he created them. This is the way we translate it in, in English into three sections. What we find, though, in this symmetry, uh, three lines with four stresses and three repetitions of the verb created. So three times the verb created, bara, is mentioned. This is the high point to which God's creativity from the opening verses is directed. So consider this. Though you could travel a hundred times the speed of light 
past countless yellow dwarf and orange stars to the edge of the galaxy, swoop down to the Milky Way to see its beautiful orange glow. Uh, you could examine uh, hundreds, a few hundred, uh, 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 or a few hundred million stars and hundreds of millions of galaxies. Uh, we still, in our observation of the known universe, the beauty and the symmetry and the importance of all these things fail into comparison with the apex of God's creation when we look at a tiny baby girl or baby boy. The greatest wonder of all is that the child, the human, is created in the image of God. The child once was not, now is a created soul. He or she is eternal. Have you ever thought about that? The child, the human, will exist forever. This creation will not. This creation will dissolve. God will make a new heaven and a new earth, but every single human soul will exist somewhere forever. This showcases the incredible power and majesty and sovereignty of our great God, and it also shows our accountability. Mankind is the pinnacle of God's creation. But how are we in God's image? And, and what is this male and femaleness here that's combined? Certainly the church fathers and reformers were correct in viewing the image of God in us as an essentially spiritual reality. Though some reformers erred in supposing that it was completely destroyed in the fall, it was not. You say, how do you know? Well, what was destroyed in the fall was man's original righteousness. How do we know? Well, because God was able, Adam was able to respond to God when he called him in the cool of the garden. He responded in a negative way, did he not? Instead of walking and talking with him, he went and hid from him. And then he tried to self-righteously present himself before God by weaving clothing of his own making. And that self-righteous clothing did nothing to cover or atone for his sin. God would have to atone for him spiritually through the shedding of blood of an innocent animal and the clothing of skin that God himself would made would make would be a clear picture and symbol that would follow throughout the annals of human history. A substitute of blood would have to be made for the sins of mankind. And God would one day come in human flesh, a body you have prepared for me, the psalmist said in quoting Jesus, pre-incarnate. And Jesus in the fullness of time would be born of a, a virgin, born in the likeness of men, born in fashion as a man, as it were. In the fullness of time, he would come to fulfill all the righteous requirements of the law so that Jesus, the just and righteous son of God, sovereign of the universe, savior of the world, would die and exchange his righteousness for our sin. Jesus, the word, would become flesh and dwell among us. He would be our substitute. And so we find that the image of God is marred, to be sure, at the fall, but it is not absent. The post-flood, for example, prohibition of murder was based on the fact that man is, is made the image of God. That's in Genesis 9-6. The Apostle James also understood that sinners still bear the image of God. Uh, he says in James 3-9, with the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the image of God. 
The image of God still persists in sinful men and women, though marred and sometimes even a caricature and a witness against itself. Nevertheless, the image of God that we all bear is, a, is wondrous and holds eternal potential. God has made each life, each human precious in his image, and each human life is eternal, will live somewhere forever. Thus, each human life is accountable to our sovereign ruler of the universe. So mankind is the pinnacle of God's creation. This is the narrative interruption that displays God's sovereignty. There's a second fact about this narrative interruption we see in verses 28 to 31, and that is mankind's God-given purpose as his creation. It's stated clearly in verses 28 to 31, mankind, and I've broken it up into three. Uh, I don't have the subpoints written in the notes. I apologize for that, but you'll have, you just have to do the old-fashioned thing and listen with your ears. There are three ways I think the text showcases mankind's God-given purpose as his creation. We are hearers. We are rulers. We are sons. That's what I see in the text as we look at verses 28 to 30. And so you say, preacher, can you show that to me? Yes, I can. So notice it says here, significantly, immediately after God had created man and woman in his image, he spoke to them, verse 28, and God blessed them and said to them. You see, this means that as image bearers, they and we also can hear and receive God's word. Now, prior to the fall, we understand from the narrative of Genesis that we're going to see in chapters 2 and 3 that God walked with Adam and Eve habitually in the cool of the garden. We see this as habitual because of the way that narrative is interrupted later. We also, in my mind, clearly believe that when God made the prohibition against the tree of knowledge of good and evil, he was making a prohibition not to eat it out of appropriate time. We know that the tree of knowledge of good and evil was not evil. It was not bad, intrinsically morally wrong or evil in and of itself. You say, preacher, how on earth could we know that? Because eating of the fruit of the tree of the forbidden tree of knowledge of, of good and evil created or caused this horrible fall and destruction and plummeting mankind into sin. So isn't that tree morally wrong? Well, you have to contend with 17 statements otherwise in chapter one. God said 17 times, it is good. So that tree was a good tree. It just was partaken or eaten of out of time in, in an improper way. Now, one must extrapolate theologically that God would have intended to teach Adam and Eve himself what would be morally good and right. To showcase to Adam and Eve, this is what is bad. This is what is good. And there would have been a time where he would have been able to partake, no doubt, of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Why? Because every tree was good to eat and good to look upon, even that one. So I, I can only liken it as I have in times past in a very silly illustration but just like you would not allow your toddler to stick their finger in a light socket or put their pudgy hand on the gas stove pilot light, neither would God allow his created toddlers to partake of something they weren't spiritually or even physically mature enough to handle out of time. Nothing wrong with the pilot light on the stove. We get wonderful delicacies that we're all longing for right now that come from the stove. 
Nothing wrong with the power outlet, the receptacle. We enjoy illumination 24 hours a day because of it. But it's not appropriate. It's not age appropriate for people who are immature and unable to understand. And so as we look at the context, God made us his image bearers, and we can hear and receive God's word. Therefore, as you sit in this auditorium this morning and you hear the Holy Spirit taking his word to your heart, God expects you to respond and he holds you and he holds me accountable for the words we hear. No other creature can hear like mankind can. This also means that we are responsible, moral, spiritual beings. The continental divide is the question here as we look uh, is how we respond. Will we respond in according to God's word? As we read from John uh, this morning, Jesus expects his followers to heed and obey his word. Will we, will we respond to God's grace and his gracious appeal to mankind as he sent his one and only begotten son that whosoever calls on him in mouth confession and heart belief will be saved? Will we receive by faith and repent of our sins? Will we receive by faith the one and only sacrifice, the true substitute for our sins? Will we reconcile, be reconciled to God who paid the ransom price by sending his precious righteous son? Or will we reject that sacrifice and live for self? Not only do we see mankind as hearers in this section, but we see them as rulers. It's also most significant that God calls his image bearers to rule over the earth. In verses 26 and 28, God views his image bearers as royal figures, his vice regents over creation. This is what astonished the psalmist in Psalm 8. Listen to Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because your enemies, that you, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heaven, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him in it to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea that pass through the pass of the sea. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. And I remember an 80s uh, Christian song from the 80s that would sing that. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Friends, do you realize that this very psalm is quoted in Hebrews chapter 1 of the second Adam, Jesus, the righteous one, where Adam failed, fell in disobedience and broke God's one and only law, plunging all of us as our federal head and seminal head, plunging all of us into sin. Jesus Christ would succeed as our second Adam. He would step into the fray. He would receive a body. He would sympathetically resonate in the human instrument with our sorrow, our pain, our grief, our suffering. Yet he would be tempted in all points just like we, but he would not sin. So that in righteousness, he could present himself before the Father on a cruel cross. And he could say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So that he could say, my God. 
my God, why have you forsaken me? As he would claim his true and one divine Elohim, Elohim. God, fully man, this one suspended between heaven and earth would be rejected by the one whom he had perfect fellowship with for all eternity. Why? Because he who knew no sin became sin for us. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus was not rejected, friend, for some theological truth or principle. He was rejected for you. He paid the price of sin's penalty for you. He was crushed and it pleased the Father to do so. He was broken for you. His stripes have healed you. Though we like sheep have gone astray and turned everyone to our own way. God the Father laid on him the Son, the iniquities of us all. Adam was meant to rule. We are meant to have dominion. Our dominion has been interrupted by the horrible, heinous sin that entered this world and death by sin. So that death has passed upon all men for all have sinned. Yet God would intervene and send his own son who we would make a little lower than the angel, angels and then would set in the heavenlies Jesus Christ. This leads me to the final sub-point this morning and my conclusion. Not only are we set as rulers, not only are we set as hearers in the text, but in finality, we are set as sons. And by that, I'm meaning sons and daughters. Okay? There's a vast dignity attached to being made in God's image, though marred by the fall. Elsewhere in Genesis, we'll see more about the image of God that distinguishes human life, namely that it suggests sonship for both men and women. In Genesis 5, 3, for example, we read that Adam fathered a son in his own likeness, exactly the same terminology that is used here. Uh, and in his image, although a biological descent was in view, the passage also links image with sonship. So we can say that just like Jesus would then take that concept in John 1, 12 through 14, but as many as received him, them gave he the power, the authority or the right to become the sons of God or the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So not only are we uh, made with an incredible uh, uh, authority or dominion, but we are presented as sons or to have sonship. This is, by the way, the idea that is picked up in Luke's gospel. Luke's gospel calls Adam the son of God. In Luke chapter 3, verse 38, mark it down, look it up yourself. Don't let me tell you. Being in God's image indicates God's paternity and his filial, filial relationship. So with these realities about the, the uh, image of God, the spiritual potential of humanity is immense. Image bearers can hear God's word and write it to untold spiritual heights 
Image bearers are innately regal beings meant to rule over all creation. Image bearers are the created offspring of God with real possibilities of eternal sonship. Now, let me just bring it down to 2023 and give you a, a really clear application before I draw this to a full conclusion, because we've kind of hovered in the heights of poetry and symmetry and narrative dynamics and, and all of these facts. I remember back in 2010, catching a flight, uh, no, excuse me, 2012, um, it was right before the election. I was catching a flight from uh, Phoenix, Greenville via Chicago. And on my flight from Phoenix to Chicago to get to Greenville, I sat next to a very well-spoken, sharp-dressed businessman, probably in his 50s, who immediately engaged me in conversation. And as we began to talk, I did this, the normal thing. I began to ask him questions and pull out from him. It turned out that he was actually rather high up in the, and at the time, President Obama's um, cabinet of environmentalist czars. So he was, he was like third in charge under one of his environmental czars. And his job was to actually travel the country and share government policy on how we should care for our environment. And it was fascinating conversation. And as we were talking about this conversation to him, he began then to turn and he actually, after probably the, I mean, it's a short flight. I don't remember the flights, maybe an hour and 15, 20 minutes of airtime uh, from here to Chicago, um, somewhere around there, you know, two and two hours total from, you know, gate to gate. Um, and so about an hour and 15 minutes into that conversation, he, he turns and he says, you know, young man, you've gotten me to talk a lot about myself. What about you? What do you do for a living? And I knew immediately that was going to be an interesting conversation. I said, well, actually, it's funny you should ask. I'm a pastor. And all of a sudden, his demeanor began to change. And he said, you know, I, you know, I used to, I grew up in a Presbyterian church and I used to believe in God. And, you know, actually, I really think mankind has failed. And I really believe that, you know, what I'm doing now is making a real difference. And I said, you know what, brother, I think what you are doing right now makes a real difference. He looked at me like, what? What did you say you do for a job again? <laughs> I said, I'm a pastor. Uh, he said, well, come again. Can you share, share with me why? And I said, yeah, I can absolutely share with you why. Let me turn with you to Genesis chapter one. And I began to share with him how God created mankind to have dominion and that we should be carers of our environment, that we should properly watch over all of the things we have dominion over. And I began to share with him why that dominion was so important. God had created us in his image, and yet that image was marred by the fall. And when sin entered in the world, it destroyed this world, and it groans for a renewal right now. And then I began to share with him how God, in his infinite mercy and grace, had reached down and made a promise via the serpent to Eve, that he would crush the serpent's head, he would renew the creation, he would send a seed, an offspring to Eve, and that offspring would be the answer to hopelessness. Then I, I introduced to him that offspring's name as Jesus. And we spent 45 minutes and he was literally sitting on the edge of his seat as I was just giving him scripture after scripture after scripture. And he stopped as we touched down. He said, young man, I have never heard the gospel presented to me in that way. He said, I've been away from God for a long time. But I think I'm going to pick up my Bible and read John's gospel. I have no idea what happened to that man. I don't even remember his name. But I can tell you this, friends. 
that may that serve as a story for each and every one of us to be reminded that all of us are image bearers. I, this is, might sound a little controversial to some of you, but not, not just the ones that we agree with politically, socially, demographically. Friends, we must treat humans with love and respect. Even if they mar and mutilate their own body, even if they buy into the lie that they aren't valuable unless they choose their own destiny, even if they think that in progressive nature, truth doesn't really matter, my truth is truth for me and their truth is truth for them, they are still made in God's image and God still values them. And friends, we still have hope and the answer, Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. Mankind has an incredible purpose, and that purpose is clearly defined. God wants us to be sons. So we see as the apex of a fully formed and filled creation made by God for him, man and woman are glorious. In there they stood before the fall, vice regions of creation in a state of spiritual, social, and economic perfection or ecological perfection. God had given every seed-bearing plant, fruit-bearing tree for food. They were at peace with God in nature, and God saw everything that he'd made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. But as we know, the fall did come. No category can adequately express the tragedy. Mankind remains in the image of God, but as grisly shadow of himself or herself. Where is our hope then? I believe I proclaimed it already. Our hope is in Christ. Why? Because he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, Colossians 1.15. He is the exact image of God's being, Hebrews 1.3, because Jesus' incarnation resulted in a formal correspondence with the first Adam by virtue of his humanity, but Christ, the second Adam, did not sin, so he can make all those who are in him alive, Romans 5.12. What awaits the Christian is the likeness or the image of Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 49, just as we have borne the image of man out of dust, we shall also bear the image of man into heaven. The destiny of believers in Christ is to be in his image and thus includes everything that was, uh, that was made or suggested in our being created in God's image. Friends, we will rule in and with Jesus, whom the writer of Hebrews shows is the one who fulfilled Psalm 8. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the sufferings of death, so that by great, the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. Again, all our hope rests on Jesus, the perfecter and the perfect bearer of the image of Christ, image of God. Note well that Colossians 1.15 is followed by verses 16 to 18, which depict him as the creator, sustainer, and the goal of the universe. As he was one who formed the universe, he can restore the form of broken lives. And more, he was filled, he who filled the earth with light, the seas with fish, the air with birds and the land with its denizens specializes in giving his righteousness to sinful uh, uh, humanity. He only has to say the word and it is done. Long ago, Blaise Pascal, following Augustine, said that there is an abyss within fallen man that, and I quote, can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object, which is to say only by God himself 
friend, as we close today, do you know that vacuum? Do you feel that void of dissatisfaction in your life? Have you been trying to fill void of dissatisfaction with stuff?